welcome to the Enlorm podcast series, a series that focuses exclusively on patients now referred to as having nanorare mutations. I'm Stan Crook, and I'm the founder, chairman, and CEO of Enlorm. Enlorm is a nonprofit foundation that I initiated in January of 2020. Our mission at Enlorm is to take advantage of the technology we created at Ionis Pharmaceuticals, Anisense Technology, or ASO Technology, to discover, develop, and provide experimental ASO treatments to nanorail patients, and to do that for free for life. Today, we began a, a complex but extremely important topic, risk. In fact, we'll discuss a number of topics related to risk. We'll talk about how scientists and risk experts think about risk how risks are perceived by most people, the factors that influence our reactions to perceived risks, and how our failure to think logically about risk harms us. I will then do my best to provide a framework that we can all use to consider risks more effectively. Lastly, I will explain why it is important for nanorare patients and their families to be thoughtful in their approach to thinking about risk. Having a pathogenic nanorare mutation imposes a harsh, high-risk reality on patients and families that forces complex risk-benefit decisions that can include the decision uh, to be treated with an experimental ASO. I know that this topic that we're tackling can be daunting, and most think they understand risk and how to think about what risks to take. I would tell you that it's in your interest to accept the possibility that the way you perceive risk and the way you think about risk may be flawed. And a failure to develop a more logical approach to risk could do you and your loved ones harm. So why do nanorare patients, families need to think about risk more effectively? Well, all humans face the hazard of a pathogenic mutation. The hazard is an event that can do harm. A risk is the likelihood of a hazard occurring, and a consequence is the impact on a person, organization, system, if a risk is actually realized. Now, in the case of the nanorare patient, the hazard of a pathogenic mutation that is extraordinarily unlikely, in fact, nanorare, has in fact been realized. And the consequences of that extraordinarily unlikely risk are substantial. Though different people have different ways of thinking about such such things, the truth is nanorare mutations are simply the laws of probability at work. It's just bad luck, genetic bad luck in the end. The realization of that extremely unlikely probability means that many negative consequences are likely to be encountered that worsen and change over time. Tragically, the patient and family must deal then with these consequences as they manifest themselves. And though they all derive from a single piece of genetic bad luck, all the symptoms demand individual decisions and responses. At the most fundamental level then, a pathogenic nanorare mutation forces multiple risk-benefit decisions on the patient and the family. Do I just give up? Do I try to find what's wrong with me? Do I invest in diagnostic and therapeutic efforts 
which approaches offer the best hope for diagnosis and treatment. All of these types of decisions are fraught with risk and intense emotions. But at some point, the person accountable for these decisions must try to separate from these enormously intense emotions and make the best decision as logically as possible. And everything is harder and worse because most people really do not have any idea how their body works, how medicines work. And then, of course, as patients, we have to put our fate in the hands or the fate of our loved ones in the hands of people who really we don't know. And we do that just because they have the credentials that give them the right and the obligation to help patients and families through these terrible, terrifying decisions and processes. But once again, we don't know them. And yet, we have to trust them as we trust probably no one else in our lives. In previous lectures, I've tried to build your knowledge base from the ground up, from what is a chemical to what is a disease and beyond. All of this was to help to prepare us to have a thoughtful, rational, informed conversation about risk and to help each of the decision makers who listen to these podcasts make better decisions. And so my goals for this conversation about risk and risk management are to help you better understand risk assessment and provide a framework that I hope will help you make better, more rational decisions for yourself and for your loved ones. And so key point, the risk of an extraordinarily unlikely pathogenic mutation that is a nanorare mutation that all of us face, could happen to any of us, is actually realized in nanorare patients. And the second key point, the consequences of a pathogenic nanorare mutation are severe and result in the need to make multiple ongoing complex risk-benefit decisions, decisions in which we try to rationally assess the risk of doing something versus the benefit or the risk versus benefit of actually doing nothing. These are really difficult challenges for all of us. To demonstrate how we actually think about risks as a, as a human population and how the way we think think is influenced by experience and many other factors and how much harm humans have done to themselves because they think poorly about risk. I'll walk you through a few historical risk vignettes. First, infectious disease. Given our recent experience with COVID, we have a fresh experience to think about and to compare to our behavior in the past. Throughout most of human history, infectious disease accounted for a sizable fraction of all deaths and most deaths in childhood. Most children who died in childhood died from infectious diseases. In the US in 1900, infectious diseases accounted for about 800 deaths per 100,000 people. And that was slightly less than the total deaths per 100,000 people from all other causes. You know, that is to say then that about half the people who died in the U.S. in 1900 died from infectious disease. Now, 
As a result of advances in public health, including clean water, draining swamps, sewage control, and all of those sorts of things that we take for granted today, the deaths from infectious disease decline by about 3% a year over the next few decades. Then, beginning in the late 1940s, the introductions of scores of new anti-infectives and better diagnostic methods led to a decline of almost 9% a year in infectious disease deaths. It virtually eradicated infectious diseases causing deaths in otherwise normal, healthy children. In fact, today, it is an extraordinarily rare tragedy to lose an otherwise healthy child to an infectious disease. But historically, two out of every five children born died from infectious disease before they became an adolescent. It's also true, of course, that infectious agents are constantly evolving. It is a war. There can be unexpected epidemics, even today. For example, in 1918, deaths due to infection spiked because about 675,000 Americans died of the Spanish flu, which actually began in Leavenworth, Kansas. At the time, the U.S. population was about 105 million people. Then again, in 1957-59, infectious disease deaths spiked because 1.1 million Americans died due to the flu pandemic in those years. Now, the COVID deaths during the most recent epidemic also accounted for about 1.1 million deaths in the U.S., but of course, our population was about 340 million. So on a per capita basis, both the Spanish flu of 1917 and the 1957-1959 flu accounted for more American deaths than COVID. Moreover, till vaccines became available, viruses like polios, measles, mumps, RSV, and many others that we could name were causes of terror, literal terror. Oh my goodness, there's a child with polio in the neighborhood. These were terrible worries that patients and families had. They're all essentially gone today. And so despite the obvious menace of infectious diseases throughout the ages, and two particularly lethal flu epidemics, as well as polio being a scourge and many others being scourges, not until the COVID epidemic did we initiate a policy of quarantining the healthy that led to the world's economy being shut down for two years, nor did the notion of wearing masks to avoid spreading infections or getting them, or staying home from work and school to protect others from the spread of infectious disease, or having special hand wash stations in public places assume any prominence. So the, here's the question. Why was the response to COVID different when we've been living with infectious disease throughout our history. What made it different? Now, another good example is smoking. Humans often, rather remarkably, choose to engage in activities that harm them. And there is no more lethal example than smoking. In 1950, half of American men and about one-third of American women smoked, and many if not most, were heavy smokers. Over the next three decades or more, a war raged between scientists and physicians and the tobacco industry lobbyists and many individuals. Mountains of data showing that smoking was catastrophically bad for health and that about two-thirds of smokers would actually die because they smoked. 
and of course, anecdotal evidence of how bad smoking is for humans is was and is as available today as then. Uh, all you have to do is think about the next person you run into who has smoker's cough. A smoker's cough is not a good thing. Nevertheless, even with all this going on, smoking increased through the 70s and 80s. In 1980, when I became head of R&D at SKB, or which is now GSK, in my first all-employee address, I was asked by a PhD chemist about my position on worker safety. Of course, I replied that I was committed to worker safety. And then I said that the single most important thing I could do to protect workers would be to ban smoking in all of our buildings. Even amongst trained medical scientists who were very worried about their exposure to toxic chemicals, my comments on smoking precipitated an outraged response. And you ask why? Even today, with taxes driving the cost of smoking through the roof and smokers having to huddle outside buildings to smoke, about 480,000 Americans will die this year due to smoking-related illnesses. Once again, why? Why do we do this? Another interesting example is auto safety. Very similar story. In 1950, there were about 22 deaths per 100,000 Americans due to car accidents. By 1970, the death rate due to car accidents peaked at almost 26 per 100,000, accounting for about 53,000 deaths that year, which was about equal to uh, infectious disease deaths in that year. Despite these terrible statistics, Throughout these and the next decades, a war raged between scientists and car safety advocates, auto manufacturers, lobbyists, and others, just as with smoking. The war on one side was fought with data and common sense, and on the other with outright lies, half-truths, and inane arguments like, well, it's my right to die in a car if I don't want to wear a seatbelt. Once again, why? Of course, I could cite many, many other similar controversies such as climate change or gun control, but I think you get the message. In my view, the answer to all these whys is that we do not think rationally about risks, and we respond to many influences on our emotions, including official positions, emotional con content of events, current vogues, news coverage, irrational comments that facilitate our adoption of positions that are actually harmful to us and our loved ones. And often in our core being, we know the decisions we're making are bad. So this becomes then the kind of conversation that is fraught with emotion. And we have to do the best that we can to separate emotion from logic. So there is a rational way to think about risk. And so let's begin with just a few definitions. A hazard a hazard is an event that could be harmful. Risk. A risk is the likelihood that a hazard will actually be encountered. So a risk is a probabilistic statement. And then consequence. A consequence is the impact of a risk on the person or population or system that is actually caused by the risk. One of the most difficult challenges that as a scientist and physician that I've faced, and I think most of us in my profession feel this way, is to address a sort of 
schism in communication. You know, it's often been said that non-scientists seek certainty and scientists are only comfortable with uncertainty. This is often said because it's almost always true. This dichotomy is at the core of the challenges in communication between scientists and non-scientists. And in no area are emotions more intense, the stakes higher, and the failure to communicate well being damaged or causing damage greater than when we discuss medical issues and science. So if we're going to have an effective conversation about risk-benefit decisions, we are going to have to bridge that gap the gap caused by this schism in the way scientists are trained to think about these events and life in general, or the way others think in, in a very different way. So once again, I want to build from the most basic to the most complex. So let's first agree that we are complex systems. You and I and other human beings are complex systems. When we treat a disease, we are altering a complex system called a human being. Now, as a general rule, complex systems are constructed from less complex building blocks. And the appearance and behavior of a complex system is a composite of the appearances and behaviors of the smallest un units or building blocks. What that means is that since an atom is comprised of some atomic particles, its appearance and behavior must reflect the properties of subatomic particles. And at a larger scale, since we are made up of cells, our appearance and behaviors must reflect the properties of cells. Said simply, complex systems are the sums of their parts. The interacting networks that are established by these smallest units and the mathematical and physical laws that govern our universe. At the subatomic level, modern science teaches us that particles or waves are the same, are really just probability statements. The higher the probability of a particle being at some spot moving at some speed, the more likely that particle will be there moving at that predicted speed when we look. But it's entirely uncertain that at the particular moment we look, the particle will be there where, where it typically is or traveling at the speed it typically travels at. These are probabilistic statements, and they reflect the reality of subatomic particles. At more macro levels, all mutations in genes can happen, and they do, but the likelihood of a mutation occurring varies from very common to very rare. In short, your genetic library is a result of the probability that your parents got together, the genetic information they shared, and a dizzying array of events that might happen the likelihood of which varies from almost always to almost never. In short, you, I, how we behave today are probabilistic events. We are a product of the cells we have, the subatomic particles we have, and the probabilities of these various events. So key point, our universe is governed by the laws of probability. Though it's often said that things happen for a reason, 
I really think what that actually means is the good people take what life gives them and make the best of it and find a reason to manage through it. Irrespective of what you may believe, assessing risk, you must think probabilistically. That's a key point. If you're going to make the best decisions for yourself and your loved ones, you must accept that we live in a probabilistic world and that scientists think probabilistically. There are no guarantees. There are only high and low probability events. Another key point, the phenotype we've displayed, as I mentioned in a previous lecture, at any moment is a probabilistic outcome reflecting the current environmental conditions and all the phenotypes that we've displayed in the past. We are a product of a set of probabilities that exist today and a set of probabilities that existed since before we were born, when our parents got together. I want to move on to the 80-20 rule. This is really important. The 80-20 rule posits that the return on investment to achieve 80% of a maximum effect is usually justified, but the investment to achieve greater than 80% of a, of a max rises exponentially, making the return on investment unattractive if you consider investing to create a greater than 80% max. Look at it differently. What I just said is that to reduce any particular risk by 80% is usually pretty well justified. You can, you can invest in doing that. But if you want to make a risk zero, that's going to be extraordinarily expensive and, and almost certainly impossible. And so though emotionally, we all want zero risk. Trying to zero risk any system is simply not justified. And in fact, it really is not possible. Even for control of infectious disease, our goal is not to immunize 100% of humans, but to immunize sufficient fraction of the population that we achieve herd immunity. So zero risking anything is essentially impossible. That is a key point. We must be comfortable with reducing risk as much as possible, making a sensible investment. Now let's move on to consequences. Consequences also have to be considered probabilistically. Any mutation may have consequences that range from no effect on health at all to death. Of course, a single mutation may result directly in several consequences, and almost always that's the case. But effects that are secondary to the basic consequences can also happen. So your basic nanorare mutation in an ion channel produces a problem in electrical currents, and that is a primary problem. But that problem in electrical currents can cause problems on its own. We'll talk about that. So to help you understand this, let's do take a very specific uh, pathogenic nanorare mutation example, and we'll talk about an ion channel. We now have at NLARM a lot of experience with ion channel mutations, nanorare mutations in ion channels. We can now say, if you have a pathogenic mutation in an ion channel, it's highly likely that you're going to have some form of epilepsy. And it's also highly likely that you're going to have some form of movement disorders. Notice what I just said. I said that it's highly probable, but not certain 
that if you have an ion channel mutation, you'll have epilepsy and movement disorders, probabilistic statements. So therefore, in a patient with a mutation in an ion channel, again, we would tell that patient, most likely you're going to have seizures appointment, and it's most likely there are going to be some problems with movement, but no promises, no absolute. And then once again, based on our experience over the last four years with ion channel mutations, it seems like maybe 50% of the time, patients with ion channel mutations also have severe GI issues and that they may manifest immediately. They may manifest later in life. We can say that this ion channel mutation is associated with a high probability of epilepsy, a high probability of movement disorders, and a reasonable chance that you're going to have some GI issues. Once again, based on experience, we can make some predictions, but they are probabilistic in nature. And we also know with ion channel mutations that a high fraction of patients will also have developmental delays. We really don't know whether those developmental delays are purely due to the ion channel mutation or perhaps they're secondary to severe epilepsy, uh, but we do know that they're going to happen. And so often we'll be able to talk about a sign or symptom being likely, even if we don't understand exactly why. Now, let's just dissect what I just did. First, we gathered all the information or available evidence about the risk of a nanorare mutation in an ion channel. Then we created a knowledge base in which we assembled the basic information in an organized fashion that facilitated our ability to think about it to understand it, and then make judgments about what are the consequences, how severe are they, how likely are they, what should I worry about? Then, based on what we learned, we made probabilistic predictions about the likelihood and severity of these various risks. We can now begin then to predict the future, and this is what physicians do every day, every minute of every day. This is what we're confronted with. We, we make predictions about the likelihood and the severity of the various risks imposed by this, in this case, a, a nanorare mutation. And, and given that we can make these predictions, we can make recommendations that make sense. But at no time can we guarantee any of these events are going to happen, that the severity will be X versus Y, or that when they will happen or exactly why they happen, all probabilities. In short, then, armed with this information, organized in an appropriate way, analyzed carefully and unemotionally, we can have a pretty good sense of what the future of that patient looks like. And then this supports an informed judgment about how desperate the need for treatment is, and how much risk we're willing to take to have a patient treated. There are mutations that cause minor problems. Should we treat them with an experimental medicine? On the other hand, the mutations that we deal with and Lorem all cause severe problems. But even in the range of severe problems, there is a giant gradation between imminent risk of death and at some point having a movement problem. Key point, the process that we follow just now 
and that you should follow as you think about risk and benefit. First, gather as much information as possible. Second, organize the information in a way that helps you make risk-benefit decisions. The sole reason you're gathering the information, really, is to decide what to do. And that's called a risk-benefit decision. Three, define the probabilities of various risks as well as you can. And then define the potential consequences of each risk. How severe am I likely to be affected if this thing happens? And then the severity of the risk and of those probable consequences, can all that can come together. And then that provides you directions about how much risk you should accept to try to find a way to prevent these risks from being manifest fully. I will say that the process we just went through should make you uncomfortable. All of us want certainty about our health and our future or the health and futures of our loved ones. But futures and health are, by definition, uncertain and difficult to predict. And a pathogenic nanorare mutation makes health and future even more unpredictable. Nor do any of us enjoy picking between severe, several bad choices. We all like to pick between a good choice and a bad choice, but that's not usually what we end up having to do if we have a pathogenic nanorare mutation. If you have a pathogenic nanorare mutation, it leaves you only choices that are unattractive, one form of bad decision or another. Nor is it easy for any of us to separate emotion from reason when our health or the health of loved ones is an issue. Nevertheless, if we are to make the best decisions available, we must be data-centered and rational. And we have to weigh a wide range of factors. For example, suppose one expert told you that he could have an ASO ready in 12 months, guaranteed. But the acknowledged father of the technology said that he couldn't guarantee anything. He hoped he could have an optimized ASO for, for you, uh, but that would be both effective and safe, but he couldn't guarantee it. And he certainly couldn't do it in 12 months. Which choice would you make and why? Well, you know, that might depend on whether you think that finding an optimal ASO is easy or complex and what you think about the credentials of the two experts and their various track records. So given that certainty cannot be achieved and the presence of a nanorare mutation presents only unattractive options, to make effective decisions, we must get comfortable with uncertainty and we must endeavor to separate emotions, what we would desire, what we would like from what may be achievable rationally. Now, how do you handle the decision to treat? Well, you handle it the exact same way as I just walked you through. Whether it, it is a good thing to treat a patient or treat have yourself treated with an experimental ASO will depend on the, a set of probabilistic calculations that you need to make. And you need to gather the facts, organize the facts, 
think through the facts in a logical fashion, be as unemotional as possible, and in the end, make a judgment that allows you to pick between typically several very bad choices. So let's get down to business now and talk about risk-benefit evaluations. Let's consider this example. There were 100 patients treated with an experimental medicine for a year. And of those 100 patients, one experienced a drug-related adverse event. Then in the next study, a higher dose was used. And three patients experienced that adverse event. You could say that the side effects were three times greater in the second study. Or one could say that in the first study, one patient experienced an adverse event, while in the second study, three experienced an adverse event. The former provides accurate information, but it totally misleads attitude about the risk, while the latter provides equally accurate information that actually informs about the risk in a sensible way. The latter says that only one out of 100 or three out of 100 patients are going to have this adverse event. They're treated with this drug. And that sounds a lot better than three times as many people treated with the drug at the higher dose will have an adverse event. Obviously, if the adverse event were death, that would be meaningful. But if the adverse event was an ingrown toenail, Uh, we wouldn't worry about it much. As you think about risk-benefit and look at data that relate to drug treatment, there is a way to think about it. And there are a set of parameters that you must understand if you're really going to to think about it logically. And the parameters of interest are, what is the intended therapeutic use of the new agent? What was the design of the trial? What was the dose? How long was the dosing intended? What fraction of patients took all the intended doses? What is the evidence of benefit? And what was the side effect and how serious was it? All the stuff that we did that preceded what I just said, we we didn't even have any idea what we were talking about. Okay, so if you're to understand, and this is a key point, the results of clinical trials, whether they are in a population of patients or a single patient, you must understand a number of parameters. Now, to carry this example a little further, let's say that the therapeutic purpose of our new agent was lower blood pressure. And the design was a placebo-controlled trial in which 50 patients with high blood pressure were randomly treated with either placebo or 50 were treated with five milligrams a day of our new agent. And our goal was to treat all patients for 52 years. Now, in the first trial, at five milligrams a day, of the 50 placebo patients, all took 52 weeks of doses. But in the treated group, one patient stopped dosing at 26 weeks, and we really don't know why. Okay, so that's the first difference. The average blood pressure change from baseline in the placebo group was zero millimeters of mercury, while in the treated group, the average blood pressure dropped five millimeters of mercury, and that difference was statistically significant. Okay, that says we our drug worked as we hoped it would. It lowered blood pressure. Good, good, good. Now, what about side effects? In the placebo group, no patients experienced nausea, but in the treated group, one patient was mildly nauseated once. Our conclusion then would be that it looks like we might have a pretty decent antihypertensive agent. It appears to lower blood pressure in a meaningful way. And the only real side effect that we've observed is 
a single patient having a little nausea once. So now let's say that we're comparing that to the second study. And in the second study, we, the design is the same, but we're now using 10 milligrams a day. The blood pressure in the placebo group actually increased in this study by five millimeters of mercury. It can do that. I mean, people get high blood pressure. <laughs> While the average blood pressure in the treated group dropped by 10 millimeters of mercury. That means there was a 15 millimeter of mercury difference between the two groups that we, we ascribed to the drug. And that difference in blood pressure was really meaningful and it was highly, highly statistically significant. However, three patients experienced nausea in the treated group here with the 10 milligrams once, and two of those vomited compared to zero in the placebo group. Well, which dose is better? It sort of depends, doesn't it, on how, how high your blood pressure is and how much, <laughs> how much you think you need to lower it? Suppose that there was another new drug that lowered blood pressure equally well, but was not associated with nausea, but two patients passed out when they stood up after a second dose, but no other time. Well, which drug is better? Well, it depends. Um, and, and once again, that's a complex judgment that we're all called upon to make. And we will be called upon to make similar judgments if you have an irritation and you're being treated or decide to be treated with an experimental medicine. So the key point is that risk-benefit judgments are extremely complex and they are unequivocally context-dependent. How sick is the patient? What is the intended goal of the drug? How frequent are side effects? And how severe are those side effects? Are the side effects reversible? That's another key question. Whether you, it feels good or not, whether it's fun or not, these are the things that if you have a nanorare mutation, you're going to have to think through. Before we leave this, I do want to make sure that you know what statistically significant means. You hear it all the time, right? That was statistically significant. Other ads that you say, well, clinical trials and so on and so on. Statistically significant really refers to the fact that our goal is to understand the truth as best as we can. And so we want to know whether, in, in a good sense of the truth, is if we did the study a bunch more times, will we get the same results? If, let's say, we did the study 100 times, and 95 times out of that 100, we got exactly the same result. I think we'd be pretty confident that we have a pretty good purchase on what, what is the true biological nature of the situation. And so we would say that's probably the truth with the techniques and methods that we have. And so that's what statistically significant it is. By convention, we've agreed that if our, if statistics suggest that if we ran the experiment a hundred times and 95 times we got exactly the same result, we'll call that true. And that's statistically significant in most cases. Very often, you'll see something called a p-value. And a p-value of zero, zero, 005 
0.05 just means that you're 95% certain that if you repeat the experiment, you'll get the same result. And therefore, you're reasonably confident that it's not that the results of the of study were not because of chance. They're real. The lower the p-value, the more certain we are that the results would be reproducible. And so if you see a p-value of p 0.0001, you know that that study really proved something. Once again, science, medicine are probabilistic, and there are no absolutely certain conclusions in science. You just have to get used to that. Final key point here is that we use statistics to help us understand that the likely the likelihood of a result represents an approximation of biological truth. In our case, we're biological beings and we're studying biology, but Statistics are used in other fields as well. The lower the p-value, the more probable that the result is true, i.e. reproducible. This is what I wanted to accomplish in this conversation. We will come back in the second part of this risk-benefit conversation and get into focused conversation on nanorare mutations and lorem and how what we do is similar but also different from what a drug company might do uh, if it were studying a patient population rather than individual patients. And with that, I'll bring this conversation to a close. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect one to 30 patients worldwide referred to by Enlorem as nano-rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorem comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorem or today's episode, visit enlorem.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorem.org. Search Enlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening.